Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, TSC on Womena, and it is such a privilege to be here. I, it's such a pleasure because I have the amazing Dr. Betty Pace. Betty, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. I don't know if I've ever told you, Betty, but you transformed my life because you were director of the Pride Program. Um, you are the director of the Pride Program at FT um, in Augusta, and that was the first time I ever really had anybody tell me about what it meant to succeed in academic medicine. So I want to say thank you for that, and I want to thank you on behalf of all of us who've come through mm-hmm. Pride My and pleasure. been touched by you. Thank you. So if you would please introduce yourself to the audience, how did you come upon this journey of being a clinician turned researcher and a badass one at that? <laughs> well, thank you so much for kind introduction and um, the vote of confidence for what I do. But um, my journey started a long time ago as a teenager when I was came into contact with someone with sickle cell disease, and that impacted me so much. I said I wanted to do research in sickle cell disease and take care of individuals with the disease. So from that point on, I worked very hard in high school, college, with that goal in mind is to go to medical school and take care of patients with sickle cell disease and do research. It's a long road, long road, medical school and residency, and then pediatric hemonc. I'm a hematologist. So another year, four, three years in that. And then I did a, a postdoctoral for four years because in order to be competitive at research, bench research, I felt I needed more training. Even though I trained as a medical doctor, I didn't have the bench research training. So after um, the four-year postdoc, I then said, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. And I started my lab, seeing patients, but I wanted to have a teaching lab. So I think that's kind of where the teaching, mentoring part of it came along. I made it so I was doing the research I wanted to do. But then I also wanted to develop my other talent, which would be for teaching and mentoring. So it started off with just uh, students in my lab who rotate through the lab, medical students. You know, we always had a lot of people want to spend the summer in the lab. And then in 2006, said, okay, let's start a formal training. And I applied to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And we were funded to start the PRIDE program. Now, I have to say what it means. <laughs> Program to increase diversity in the health-related research. 
And we have been going ever since. We're in our 15th year. Uh, we focus on mentoring and training young people like yourself, underrepresented junior faculty, teaching you how to um, develop a career uh, plan, research, um, balance between your clinical and research, and apply for grants so you can become independent investigators. So after um, 15 years, we've been very successful. Um, we've trained 114 mentees, and they're all, you know, the majority doing very well with grant funding, K Award, R01, Harold Amos. Um, very, very impressive. But I, I wouldn't change anything. It's a lot of work, but I love doing it. And seeing young people flourish, it, it gives me such a, a great pleasure. So like today, coming back and talking with you and your success. I do remember our conversations about what you should do, but I think it's about the mentoring and, and instilling the confidence that you can do this. And we don't have that as underrepresented, especially underrepresented. So I, I think that that is what drives me to do this and I'll keep doing it. Wow. And thank you for your work. Now, mm -hmm. one thing that you said, you've been very successful. I love the way you own it. And you have been very successful. This is nationally known that among programs throughout the country that are focused on increasing representation in research, you have been one of the most, if not the most successful program. What is your secret sauce? I think it comes from within and your dedication and, and genuine, my genuine desire to see young investigators be successful. And that makes me happy. So I work really hard. And when that happens, then that gives me the fuel to, to keep going <laughs> and do it again. Sometimes, you know, they, uh, some of the young people say I was a taskmaster, you know, I worked them a little too hard. But, you know, sort of like your children, you know, it's <laughs> hurting me more than you, you kind of thing. But I think it is really the, the caring. I, I try to communicate to the trainees that I really care about you and your success. And when you're successful, I'm successful. That's the way I view it. And so I think people really can pick up on that. And the long-term relationships. We, I still communicate with people who first started in the first year in 2007. We have like a family, a network. Uh, and so I think you get a lot out of it. They saw the value. And it's interesting you should ask about that. I just saw an article yesterday that was published from NCI. It's still talking about how underrepresented junior faculty, they do not have mentoring opportunities. Same story. Same story. So NHLPI had a lot of insight when they started the pride program. And it is very successful, not just my program, but all the other programs that are funded too. There's eight other programs. And I think NHLBI uh, is in it for the long haul and really want to increase diversity. So, secret sauce is love, I guess. <laughs> I love it. You know, I was going to ask you next, what is the biggest challenge that you see for increasing representation in science? It is hard work. You have to, when, they, when the young people come into my program, I think it's the lack of confidence that they can do it. 
And so if you don't have someone encouraging you and teaching you at the same time and mentoring on how you can be successful, then you just, you know, drop out and say, I can't do this. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that just going and taking care of patients is, is uh, less important, but you'll say, I'm going to do what I, I, I can do best. I'm going to go see patients and become a clinician. Um, but for the research part of it, you have to instill the confidence that they can do it. And I think that's really important. And if you don't get mentoring, where is it going to come? Mm. You know, most people in your family don't know anything about research. <laughs> when you can't talk to family members, you know, I try to describe my research and be like, what's your, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I think the early on mentoring, uh, even high school undergraduate and, and instilling in underrepresented students and STEM students that they can do it as well and keeping that confidence going, even through junior faculty, uh, because you still need the support, for sure. But uh, I, I think that is a key problem. The resources, the mentoring, it's just not there. It isn't. Well, one thing that I see that's unique about your program mm -hmm. is that you take on faculty who have already started, have maybe even been on faculty for a few years. And many times I hear the sentiment that well, if you finished your fellowship and you didn't get the research training, it's too late for you. Can you speak to that? That's a very good question. And probably sort of lose what I was saying previously. When I finished my fellowship, I myself felt I was not ready to compete as a faculty member. So that's why I was fortunate enough to get Harold Amos funding and to do a postdoctoral fellowship and get more training. So if you want to do be a physician scientist and have like a research lab, independent lab, and still see patients, you really do need more training. And I uh, recommend that for people who really want to uh, dedicate their career to be a research scientist. However, there are other areas that you can go into and be very successful doing clinical research, which you probably don't need more postdoc. You can get a master's and, and enhance your abilities there. So there's many ways for MD by training to expand their capability to do research. It doesn't have to all be bench research, it's clinical, and now the implementation research, all these types of research are, are very valuable. So you can become a more general clinician scientist. You know, um, physician scientist traditionally refers to people who want to do the bench research. But there's many tracks um, that you can go on, but the key, is when you get your first faculty position is negotiating to have the time to continue to develop. And that's the one thing that I think is a weakness of the program is that NHLBI does not allow us to recruit fellows. Hmm. If, if we could get a third year fellow, help them negotiate their package, find their faculty position, I think we have a, a jump start in the process. Um, but, you know, when they you all came to us, you've already got your faculty position. Look, you already stuck with a bad package, so what can we do? <laughs> you know, 90% clinical and 10% research time. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we still try to work. We've had some people like that in the prior program. They were not as successful, but I think it was still valuable mm. to get that experience, to feel like they're part of a network. So there's more that comes out of the prior programs and, you know, always getting a grant 
But those people, even when they didn't get grant, they, they learned better. They, they learned how to operate better. And they got the promotions, you know. Mm -hmm. So they were uh, better physicians and able to compete better. So there are a lot of different things that can come out of the program. Now, let me ask you this. For, and you mentioned something about kind of the, you already have the faculty position. You're, you're stuck with a position that doesn't support research. Mm -hmm. Who are the people who succeed versus those who, who struggle? in the PRIDE program? The most successful mentees are those who uh, have protected time. Mm. When they uh, come to the PRIDE program, because then they have the time to really spend uh, in PRIDE, learning what they need to learn, doing the grant writing, publications. Uh, we have some extra training opportunities we have now for PRIDE, taking advantage of their PRIDE mentor, this extra ex expertise. So they have the time to make it happen. So the most ideal training would be an MD who has a 70-30, 70% the time. And we have uh, MDs like that. I'm very impressed. They negotiated nice packages and have 70% protected time for three to five years. So if they can build, you know, get that care award, get the research going, uh, et cetera. And some are doing bench research and some are doing clinical research. Um, the most challenging thing is the basic scientist who's at the teaching faculty, mm -hmm. uh, teaching institution, I should say, and they do a lot of teaching. So their their duties are looked at doing all kind of coursework, you know, different courses, three or four courses a semester, and then you can't do anything. You're always teaching and grading tests and, and taking care of the students. So those trainees tend to have more challenge, more challenge. But I would say whether you're doing bench, clinical, it's, it's having the protected time. And number two, some financial support. You know, it's start a package to help you get your, your program going. Hire some people to help you. It's hard to start a program when you're the only person. You know, need some research assistant, associate, something to help you no matter what your focus is. So having protected time, funding, and then key is that you're in a department where your leadership, whether it's your division chief or chair of peds or medicine, they really want to see you succeed. And you're in a good environment. You can come to all the private programs in the world, but if you go back home <laughs> and no one's supporting you, um, we just put you right back into the same uh, environment. And unfortunately, that happened with several of our private mentees as well. So. It's complicated. It is. It is. I will tell you that I was one of your mentees who joined mm -hmm. at 80% mm -hmm. clinical time with 20% protected time. <laughs> and it's it's definitely been a journey. And I would well, say no, that. I mean, what year did you? I was in 2015, yeah. the, day, the okay. year my life changed forever. <laughs> well, it doesn't seem like it's been eight years. Wow. Wow. So yes. talk a little bit about what your success has been too and what you got out of the Pride. Absolutely. So I, I think the, the biggest thing I got out of the Pride program was just awareness. Like I think, you know, nobody tells you what you're supposed to do as a faculty member. I didn't even really realize I wasn't ready. I was a clinician. I just figured being a clinical person and doing research, I, it was going to be okay. And, <laughs> and so, and I came to my faculty position and, and I, you know, wasn't felt to be qualified to get a research supported position. And so I got the 20% protected time and I thought, well, okay, I can make this work. 
And what I didn't realize was it was not a setup for success. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing these projects and really running with them, trying to move them forward. And when I came to the Pride program, I remember you just laid out for us what we should be pursuing in as a faculty member. And I remember that whole week, it was probably two and a half weeks, I feel like. And I was like, oh my gosh, it was like you blew my mind. I was like, nobody told me. How is it that nobody told me that this is what I'm supposed to be doing? And I remember asking you, you may not remember, you've had so many of us, but I was like, is no, why is nobody telling me that this is what I'm supposed to do? And, and, and I said, but, but what if, what if we're not supported to do that? And you said, you're going to have to start to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to my institution and I said, Hey, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be submitting a K. And I think people were like, you're not ready. I'm like, no, I need to submit it now. Yes. (laughs) Yes. They were the worst Ks ever, but they got me started. Yes. Yes. And, and it gets you on the right track. And you're fortunate you had people who supported you. Now, so, that doesn't excuse the fact that they were not mentoring you. Properly. You know, it is what it is. One of the yeah. things that you mentioned earlier is caring, right? And I think what I've run into in my experience, and I'm glad to, for to be where I am, is that if people don't believe you can, then there's no energy to help you. They say, well, you just can't do it too bad but there's something else you know and they send you off to do do the work you can do yeah and that's where I found myself where I felt like I didn't have people who believed I could Mm -hmm. and you are the first person who believed I could and gave me the tools I needed to move forward Mm -hmm. and so it took me a long time I was doing heart transplant research when I met Mm -hmm. you I'm I'm a hematologist I was doing heart (laughs) transplant research yes and it was a few grants. Actually, I th- probably put in the Amos maybe three or four times. And mm-hmm. it was one, some of the feedback I finally got where it was like, but what is a hematologist doing? I know. <laughs> heart transplant re- research. And it was, it was, you know, I was doing other research on the side. And mm-hmm. then it was the first time I said, well, let me just bring the stuff I've been doing that I care about and make it sure. into a project. Sure. And that was what got me the Amos. And, and along the way, I had started getting support. So I started on a K-12. I got the Amos. And since then, I've gotten mm-hmm. some other foundation mm-hmm. awards. But it's really, it's really been a journey. It's been a journey. Okay. And many doors were closed because I sure. was the phenotype of people who don't succeed, right? Mm-hmm. But it really did take you jumpstarting me. And that really made a difference for me. But that's interesting because I think in your case, I always viewed it as you were doing your hematologist doing cardiac, you know, transplant research, but it was what was available to you. Mm. It, it, it was what you could actually move into and no one else was competing. No one else wanted it. So you took it and made it into something. And you're still doing hematology type of research, but it was with cardiology patients. But I think that so often as young faculty, um, no one's, basically sitting down and say, okay, what do you really love? What, what, what do you want to do? Uh, what type of research, what kind of career path development you want to have? And then developing and supporting what's in your heart. And most people don't get that. But, you know, you, you've been successful. You've been able to take that. And I, I thought it was very interesting research. I think it's kind of cool. You're a hematologist doing this kind of research. Oh. Uh, and you've been successful in the field. And, and leading uh, in the field. So, so often, uh, young people basically end up doing what samples are available that they can analyze or 
what can get them started. And I think doing that is better than um, just sitting and not doing anything. And you know they'll love for you to go to clinic and see patients. There's never a shortage of patients in clinic. <laughs> never. So you really have to be determined if you don't get the protected time in the first, you know, five years of your career, you have to try to steal time from different places and be successful because, you know, after you've gone five years, it's so hard to get started that late. You know, it's already, you're too late. As far mm -hmm. as I'm trying to become competitive on a national basis, did you sit mm -hmm. to see patients for five years? So, got to hit the ground running. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I wanna. Oh yes, I want us to talk about the Pride program. What? Mm -hmm. What? What? How do people apply? How do they hear about it? What's? How do they? How do they get mm -hmm. in on it? So we're currently uh, uh, in between funding cycle. Usually, the, the program is funded for now five years. So starting uh, in 2024, once we receive our notice of award, which I'm um, confident we will receive, then we'll open up for recruitment. And that's where previous trainees become so critical and pat, you know, getting the word out that we are recruiting uh, for the program. We have a centralized database where uh, applicants would fill out their application, upload their CV and, and letters. Uh, and then after a pre-screen, those uh, applications are sent to us. We have an admissions committee. We review the applications and decide which applicants have the right type of research. It needs to be heart, lung, and blood on focused research. Or, you know, sickle cell disease. <laughs> you know, we get a lot, of, a lot of young people doing sickle cell disease research. And then whether or not they have the environment and support at their home institution. This is critical. So we ask the chairperson to put in writing that they're going to, this trainee is going to have the protected time to be able to participate in the prior program 100%. And it's a year long program. Uh, and if they pass all of those things, then we do a, uh, now we do a Zoom interview. And once we say this is a good person to, to possibly recruit after that, our admissions committee makes a recommendation. And hopefully, like for instance, we'll start recruiting in the winter of 24 or the summer of 24. So it's really short. That first year is a quick turnaround. And so people being able to make the commitment of the first year of training, Summer Institute is two weeks. And then they have a mentoring on, networking, peer mentoring throughout the year. And then they come back the subsequent summer or a second summer institute, which is shorter. Um, we just see 10 days. We're kind of playing around with whether the second uh, institute will be uh, virtual because it is hard for individuals now to, to stay for that long. And after COVID, everybody's pretty much gone to some type of virtual. So you get an in-person interaction, which is so important to get to know your, your uh, mentee uh, colleagues. And then the second summer, maybe do um, a little bit of virtual mixed in with it. And then after that, you get a, a certificate of completion from Dr. Gibbons at NHLBI. And since after you train, starting with the last cohort, they now give pilot funding. Yes, yes, for research pilot project um, to help jumpstart uh, the, the mentees training. So we're very excited about that. We now have four cohorts 
who have been funded through NHLBI. And uh, we're, we're waiting to see if, you know, it translates into more grants and, and funding, but it's wonderful. Have the, you know, a little bit of money to get started. It's, it's not quite as much as like a K-12, mm-hmm. but I think it's wonderful to have that pilot funding. So you get training and you get a little money. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. That's pretty mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us, what's the inclusion and exclusion criteria? Okay. It's for underrepresented uh, junior faculty. You have to have a faculty position. So you can be finishing your fellowship, and if you have your letter of offer signed, we can take you. Um, and underrepresented is defined based on NIH definition, you know, African-American, Hispanic, Native Islanders, et cetera, that, that definition. You have to be a U.S. citizen. What else? You have to be committed. You have to commit to spend and have the protected time to participate. And disabled. Junior faculty, we're actually looking to help train some dis- disabled faculty. And uh, if you have a disability, you can be any race. It doesn't have to be underrepresented. So those are the main uh, criteria. Assistant professor uh, level is what we most commonly see. Occasionally, we'll have been an associate professor, but in general, assistant professor, instructors, uh, for the bench research and research scientists, uh, they have a faculty position. I think that's mostly care. Did I miss out? Leave anything out? Now, do they have to be a, a, a research one institution to participate? A research what institution? Like a, 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 a re- research one institution. No, no. The Pride program is there to help anyone who wants to improve their skills, experience mentoring, and be successful in their career. Our mentees have come from the Ivy League institutions, you know, Harvard, <laughs> Yale, you know, Johns Hopkins, all the way down to the community colleges, you know, the community undergraduate colleges where they teach. They have a chance to do some bench research, our PhDs. And we've been able to turn some of those people's their careers around and they get funding and they do better and be able to get more protected time. But we really look at each individual candidate, uh, their potential uh, to be successful, how much they want it, and uh, if they have the support at their institution. So I would say we go to this full spectrum and uh, across the country. We have people from um, all the way East Coast, down New York, all the way down to uh, San Diego. <laughs> so, but the majority of our Trainees come from from around Augusta, you know, the Augusta, Georgia area, and then a lot come from Midwest, the Midwest. So, okay, I, is this only MDs or is this PhDs as well? You have in any degree, it could be MD, MD, PhD, straight PhD, um, veterinary medicine. We've had people in that nurses, PhDs. We have a really strong cohort of nurses who are doing research. Um, Do so as long as it's a faculty, recognized faculty position, I would say about 50% of our trainees are bench researchers and about 50% MDs. Okay. So it's a pretty pretty hefty split, equal split between them. But then the majority of our trainees are doing either bench research or clinical research related to sickness cell disease. Okay. Now, I want to ask you about the peer mentoring program. You have a pretty unique component with the peer mentoring. Do you want to speak about that? 
It is wonderful. Um, we started the peer mentoring program with our last round of funding for Pride 3. And we just started off experimenting. I did some reading on it and, you know, kind of the pros and cons of peer mentoring and so forth. But in general, I thought it was more positive uh, than negative. And so we teamed up with our education institute on campus, and we used that faculty who has some expertise in it to actually set up a peer mentoring program. I can't remember. Did you have peer mentoring during? Yes, I did. Okay, great, great. I think great, I may great. have been the first score. Okay. Okay. Very good. Very good. And it was so overwhelmingly successful. Everybody thought it was just awesome. And you, you know, you you need many different types of mentors. Yes. You have your your environment, your institution mentor who help you with you know your promotion package and and help you with your career development in your institution. And you have research uh, mentors who help you and know an expert in your research area. And then we have the peer mentoring. They're experiencing the same thing as you. And so they have a different perspective mm. that they can give to their peers and they feel more comfortable talking more freely with your peer mentor mm -hmm. than you might feel talking to your research mentor or someone in your uh, home department. So I think when you put that all together, we call that a mentoring team. Mm -hmm different components. So the research mentor, academic development, career development mentor, peer mentor, and then we always include the home research or advisor as well. So we have four members of the research team. And Pride actually supports someone who is a leader in the field. Our mentors in Pride are top-notch. One part of it, you know, and it's wonderful. They, I've never had anyone turn me down to be a mentor that I've been invited to the program who I felt could uh, contribute. We have people like Dr. Mohan Naria, who has been a mentor in the Pride program since 2006. Wow. Wow. That's, you know, he's popular every year uh -huh. uh, and he always participates, very strong supporter. And so we have a cadre of mentors with different expertise. So we try to build a team mm. so that you can get everything you need. And so we've continued the peer mentoring program. We actually had our first publication on it, which was wonderful. And thank you for congratulations. <laughs> um, and so that we will keep. We'll, we decided to formalize it, keep it as part of even the next round of funding and see if we can kind of expand it. But overall, it's, it's very successful. And that's based on the response of the mentees. That's wonderful. That's mm -hmm, wonderful. Mm -hmm, wow. I feel like I've asked you as much as I can remember to ask you. <laughs> what what haven't we talked about about the Pride program that we we should we should mention? Um I've talked everything about the program. We have the teaching faculty, uh, but I've been amazed at how dedicated um faculty have been to the Pride program and their willingness to come back the, the next year or the next year and support it. Uh, I think it gives them a sense of, of accomplishment and they've contributed to something um, that's important. So from our teaching faculty, we have people who've been teaching a certain topic since 2006, coming every year and teaching it faithfully. We have mentors like Dr. Narla. Um, and then we have uh, our staff, which is wonderful. Uh, Natasha Alford, who is our program coordinator, and Ayoko Takazaki, who is our research coordinator, 
Um, they are absolutely wonderful. I always say they run the program. <laughs> Our program is unique, which we haven't talked about. And maybe you can comment on that as well. Our Summer Institute is a combination of didactic and bench research. So when you go into the lab and actually conduct uh, some bench research, and we always have people who want to apply say, well, is that going to be useful for me? I'm, I'm a clinician, and I want to do clinical research. And I always say, you learn how to do structured research, which can then help you do even better in your clinical research, taking care of your patients. You learn an appropriate approach, learn how to read the, the literature uh, better, what's a good study, what's not a good study. Um, and even though you may not continue to use that laboratory technique, it, it expands your experience. Mm -hmm. It really does. It, it makes you appreciate the person who's doing the best research. Mm -hmm. You know, where they collect data for five years and get white. You know what I mean? Everyone that was concerned when they applied always come back and say, wow, that was a great experience. Don't take it away. <laughs> just a little, you know, just to get them introduced to it. And then, of course, you know, the bench researchers love it. So we have to balance between our clinical and our um, basic science people. So there's something for everybody. So we, you know, do the fact that now we've expanded. And we try to address what research is relevant at the time. So, for instance, 10 years ago, implementation research wouldn't have been relevant. Mm. And now the health services research, implementation science, public health research, we now, health equity, we now try to cover those topics for whatever our mentees need and whether they're a specialty is. So we're ever-changing program as far as the public. Mm, but all we take ourselves is easy. Yes. <laughs> Yes. You wonder why that is, right? <laughs> I think it's because I attract a lot of sickle cell disease researchers. So that's my field. Um, that's what I love. And then actually having an African-American director as a role model as well. I think that that's very important in the PRIDE program. And then one other thing that we've tried to change is the majority of our trainees are women. Over the 16 years, about 60, 70% women. And so we really want to try to get more men involved. So that's where to spread the word around and get more men to participate. But it's not just our program, it's all the prior programs. So the trend in medicine, I think, and um, research. Can you speak to that a little bit? What, what, do we, what is going on? Why do we have fewer um, men interested? It, it's a bigger... Uh, issue in medical school. Um, do you look at the numbers for the AAMC? There are more women who apply, more women who are admitted to medical school, and you know you're feeding that pipeline. So it's just going to continue further down the pipeline. Um, it, it's it's interesting. In the beginning, it seems like the men are not getting the support, or the women are more ambitious and motivated. I don't know which one it is. I'm probably a little bit of both. But however. It flips when a male gets a faculty position. An underrepresented male will have more chances for mentoring than an underrepresented woman. Mm. And I, I, I myself, you know, I was fortunate to have one person who cared about my career and kind of, you know, helped me go along and uh, stay on the right path. But I hear so many women talking about they don't have mentors. 
mm-hmm. in their institution. So I think that it's just a trend. There are more women than men. You know, I think the numbers are not quite equal. And we're hoping that there's a lot of effort to turn it around, though, to get more men involved. I did a little more heavy promising to men <laughs> if they participated <laughs> in the pride program, you know, give them a little extra <laughs> kind of thing that uh, it actually helped. So we, in the last couple, three cohorts, we have a, a bit three or four men out of a total of about 10 trainees. So we, we're turning it around, but um, it, it's a, a concerning trend that's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for everything you do to mm-hmm. increase mm-hmm. diversity in research. And you, you've been so successful and I appreciate mm-hmm. all the work you've done. Do you have mm-hmm. any closing comments for our audience? Well, I think that you asked me what would be a burning question for me related to mentoring and what I've been able to accomplish in the prior program is I, I would ask the public, even when I received my award for leadership and diversity for ASH, my plea to the ASH a membership is everybody needs to mentor. Everybody should have some degree uh, of commitment to men- mentoring the younger generation because if we don't do it, uh, no one will, and the younger generation will not have the keys they need to be successful. So there are um, faculty I know never mentored anybody. They're very successful, big grants, big labs. Um, they only mentor, you know, maybe a postdoc, but they don't take to heart, you know, other junior faculty. And they build strong programs, but they don't reach back and, you know, kind of pay it forward uh, to the next generation. So I'm very concerned and always making a plea uh, for people to be more sensitive to mentoring and be more dedicated to mentoring. Um, throughout their career, throughout their career. I just don't think that we have enough people who want to train and mentor. So why do you think that is? It is hard work. Mm, yes. You can it is that. hard. <laughs> it's like a new baby in a diaper. <laughs> it's like having a house full of children. Yeah, especially something like a pride program where, you know, you're, you're being a mother figure to attend junior faculty a, a year. And they always, even though I might be not be their assigned a research mentor, it's sort of like a given fact that Dr. Pace is everybody's mentor, you know, and they feel they can call on me at any time. So and we can, and, and we do. I, and, and, and I try to answer because once you become a part of the pride uh, cohort in the village, we're always there for you. That's what we tell people. But it is, I remember early on, I was like, can I do this? Mm. The first funding cycle, it was so hard. The amount of planning and arranging for the summer institutes and support. And you know how we waited on you all hand. But <laughs> oh, you too? <laughs> Got the royal treatment. Yeah, we want ours to be the best, you know. It's like, if I'm not going to do it if it can't be the best. <laughs> And so it was a lot, it's a lot of work and then keeping it up in between the institutes. Um, some years we have two sets of cohorts, you know, up to 20 trainees. Um, the whole month of July is like training people. And I, I did get discouraged in the first uh, round of funding and say, can I do this? And then you, you haven't seen the fruits of your labor yet. Mm. 
the trainees any time to see that they're going to get the grants, get the promotion. So, and then, you know, like with everything, there are some trainees who were a little bit ungrateful for their experience, but it is what it is. So I, I think it took time for me to say, I'm doing this for me. Mm. That it's important that I do it because I love doing it. Mm. And don't expect any praise or thanks or, you know, just do it. It's nice when people say thank you, like, you know, you show your appreciation. Because at least you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm accomplishing what I need to accomplish. However, you can't be in this business looking for someone to praise you and to motivate you along. It has to come from within. So, but it is hard work. It really is. How uh, do you do a lot of mentoring? Well, you know, this podcast is part of one of my efforts because okay. what I see is that there's mm-hmm. such a gap in knowledge. And like mm-hmm. you, I feel that if people just had information before they stir the faculty sure. position, sure. so much harm would be avoided. But I still think people can turn it around too. And so mm-hmm. a lot of it is is getting information out there. So yes, mm-hmm. but you know, I feel like I mean, outside of a training program, you can't there's not that many you can mentor at one time. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I still do my one on one, you know, in the lab, not as much because the private program has kind of consumed my effort for mentoring, but if a student wanted to do summer research with us, we actually had a medical student who was funded by ASH to spend a year doing some a oh, short wow. research project with us. So I still do that. I'm no, I'm not no longer training any more PhD students. I graduated my last PhD student, so you mentor in that way. But yeah, you're right. It, it's more difficult if um, you're not having the time one on one. And I'm also faculty in the graduate student school, and that's where the majority of the training will come from. I mean, medical, you're just going to have the fellows and they tend to be a different type of, of mentoring. Sure. Um, yeah, so one, yes. thing I, one thing I've done more of is coaching because I can't mentor as many people intensely, but yeah. I can coach people through and connect them Wonderful. to resources. So, so that, what is the difference between coaching and mentoring? Well, so, you know, I feel like if I if I say mentoring is more like to some extent, it's more like mothering, right? You're, it's the labor pains of bringing people forth. Coaching, I think, is more, I, you do the work. If you want to do it, you do it. But helping you figure out what resources do you need to access so you can Thank move you. forward. So Thank it's you. very much dependent on the person to move forward. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess that means I'm both a mentor and a coach. Yes, you are. I can, I can keep you, but. <laughs> and that's, you know, as part of some of the training I did, it's, mm-hmm. it's to be able to mentor as a coach. You know, one of the things you said in the beginning that really resonated with me is that we start from what people love to do. Not mm-hmm. having people say, can you just follow me? Just do what I do, which, mm-hmm. yeah, you'll succeed, but you won't be happy. And so the coaching piece allows people to say, you, you tell me, what is the future that gives you joy? Let's help Mm -hmm. you create that. Mm -hmm. And I think mentors could do that too. Mm -hmm. And maybe over time, we'll have more mentors who are coaching too. Sure. And, and even more important, when you see a young person going down the wrong path, you say, you know, maybe you should consider doing something else. I I coached in that way as well. And it it turned out successful. Sure. Well, yeah. And it's sometimes just having that insight and working with the uh, young faculty. You know, not that you want to burst their bubble and, you know, seal their dreams, but with that experience, you can kind of steer them in a better direction. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I think ultimately right. it's caring enough about the person to get to know what they need so mm-hmm. that you can help them get there. Yeah. No, wonderful. I really have enjoyed it's speaking with pleasure. you. Thank you. And Thank you. Congratulations for... <laughs> on your effort and you. podcast. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Perfect fit. <laughs> so um, let me know when it, it will air so I can listen. And then just send me the information on, you know, when your podcast airs, I can listen in and learn something as well. You never stop learning. Sure. I really sure. appreciate your time. No, it's been my pleasure. All right. For everyone who's been listening, you've heard Dr. Pace. If when it's time, if you are eligible for the pride program, please, it is a phenomenal program. It mm-hmm. will change your life. And even if you feel like you're not eligible, still apply. And you'd rather be turned down than to actually not apply. And you all along were eligible. All right. And, Eddie, and you can yeah. go to our website, www.augusta at augusta.edu slash pride. All right. I'm going to put that in the in the show notes. So please check the show notes so you can get that information. And if they're looking for you, how how can they find you? B as in boy pace at Augusta.edu. Very simple. You can put that there as well. So absolutely love to hear from you. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do health.